This is The Guardian. Boris Johnson might have thought he was out of political trouble as he focused on the war in Ukraine. But Partygate is back, as proved by one of Keir Starmer's points at Prime Minister's question. He really does think that it's one rule for him and another rule for everyone else. That he can pass off criminality in his office and ask others to follow the law. The Metropolitan Police has said 20 fines are being issued for parties in Whitehall and Downing Street. Johnson is in a tricky position. He seems to be denying that laws were broken at number 10, even though the police are now issuing fines. Can you make that make sense? And where's the Labour Party in all this? Why are they really not capitalising on all this chaos? I would say that Keir Starmer doesn't really have a vision for the country, no story. So we're going to try and find him one. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff and Peter Walker, our political correspondent. Hello to you both. Hello. 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 Uh, before we talk about the details of Partygate, I want to ask you about a party that happened very recently, although some people say it wasn't actually a party at all. It was definitely what um, old hacks like me might call a slap-up dinner. That they cons- <laughs> <laughs> That's a phrase you haven't heard for a long time. Slap-up dinner, excellent. I'm never quite sure what that means. Um, that the Conservative Party, the Parliamentary Conservative Party, had on Tuesday night, as one of those occasions when it feels a bit like the country might be getting dangerously close to pre-revolutionary France, in the sense that in the midst of so-called Partygate, it was another party. It was also a party at which... Conservative MPs ate in order salmon tart, chicken thighs and a chocolate praline dessert separately, I, I hasten to add, followed by coffee and putty fours in the midst of the cost of living crisis. Now, they were very appreciative of the level of hospitality and the general merriment, as proved by the response of the legendary Michael Fabricant MP. Is this party going to help you forget all the others that happened in Downing Street? Well, we're going to have a lot of fun, I know that, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And, you know, it was great. We had a photo taken. It was absolutely super. So you're having a, a jolly old time? Well, it's occasionally nice, once every two or three years, to get together. Michael Fabricant there in characteristically ebullient mood. I wanted to ask you both whether this dinner party, whatever it was, and its timing do highlight a sort of spectacular indifference to optics on the part of Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party. Peter? I think it's as much as anything this sense that a lot of Conservative MPs and people number 10 has got that they think they're over the worst. They think the Ukraine war has got Johnson kind of off the hook and the public attention has moved on. And he still needs to kind of schmooze his MPs, which is why he's got them all in. But it's just this sense of we're in the clear now. Now let's reset. Let's kind of talk about what we want to talk about. I'm not sure what it is about sort of Boris Johnson's previous career through politics that makes anyone think he's particularly sensitive to, um, to, <laughs> to what you might call the nuances of situations like this. And we all know he's not very good at telling whether something is a party or not, even when he's actually at it. <laughs> so maybe he was generally confused and thought this was a work event. I mean, that's most likely explanation, isn't it? But 1789-esque-ish? I don't. I mean, I'm not expecting sort of guillotines and knitting any minute now. But um, but yeah, I just I just think when you're in this deep already, you know, what's another evening of digging? Probably is, is the <laughs> thought that goes through their heads, and also the the sense that you know they'll be thinking, well, we can't not have 
parties forever. How long does this have to last? You know, it's rather like the approach to COVID, which is just, we say it's over and we get on with it, even if however many thousand people are still getting infected. It's like, we'll draw a line under party gate and move on and behave as normal and expect everyone else to sort of move with us. That's what normal is, coffee and putty foes all round. Um, we it are could re- have been caviar and lobster. You might as well have gone the whole hog at this stage. I don't I mean, think they serve caviar and lobster at the Park Plaza Hotel. I've stayed there at least once <laughs> in the past. Oh, now who's fancy? It didn't feel fancy to me. Anyway... <laughs> That may be indicative of my exactly, higher rolling tastes. Used um, to better things. We are recording this episode of the podcast shortly after Prime Minister's questions. And we're going to talk about two things that it seems to me are very topical, which were reflected in Prime Minister's questions. One is the question of Boris Johnson's leadership, as we mentioned a moment ago, where Partygate or the, the likely return of Partygate is an issue sits in the midst of that. And then the second thing we're going to talk about is the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, and the sense that some people, including me, have of the fact that perhaps he isn't seizing the moment quite as much as he could be. Let's talk about Boris Johnson and the Tories, first of all, and the mess that they may or may not be in. It seems to me that Boris Johnson is really at the mercy of events, and partly because he's a people pleaser. He just wants to be liked, and that leads to him sort of floundering around. For a brief moment... Certainly some of his colleagues wanted to think that the the war in Ukraine gave him direction and he was suddenly able to affect to be at least a leader on the world stage and be a sort of serious statesperson. But underneath all this, I think his big problem is that he has no vision for himself or, or his party. He had get Brexit done, which was very effective, but that's happened. And now that general sense of direction has come back into focus through the prism of Partygate because ordinarily... When a government was hit with something like that, if a government ever has been, it would say, look, this is so much fluff, which is what they say, and we need to get on with the job. We have a mission we need to get on with. And I'm never sure, and I don't think they are, of what that mission is. Now, most pressingly right now, the Metropolitan Police have announced that they are about to issue 20 fines for the breach of COVID-19 rules, and that, let's let's remind ourselves, means the law during lockdown. So Partygate definitely is back after this weird interregnum we had in which the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg was saying this is all fluff and it was going to recede and forget about it. It's come roaring back. Peter, tell us, and you would know, I know this following your Twitter feed, (laughs) where we're at now with all of this. We're in a bit of a mess. I mean, this is definitely getting quite bad for Boris Johnson in the sense that The thing they didn't want to happen, which was the fixed penalty notices being issued to some people, has taken place. And the fact that the first 20 have come in, these were what the police are saying, the kind of low-hanging fruit, the ones where people maybe on their questionnaire said, yes, I was at this party. But it indicates that they're willing to levy fines. There could be more to come. And the big crunch is going to be if Boris Johnson gets a fine. uh, We are assured by number 10 that we will be told if he gets it. And talking to Tory MPs, This is the thing that they think it's quite worrying. They think this is the person who set the rules that everybody abided by at, you know, many cases, enormous personal cost. And then the, you know, they they kind of broke the rules. But more kind of immediately, they're just in a complete mess in terms of how they react to it. I was at a very, very strange number 10 lobby briefing. We get these two briefings from the Prime Minister's spokespeople every day. And the one yesterday was just quite weird. Because the 20 fines had been uh, issued and we're saying, okay, so do you accept that irrespective of what the Prime Minister said, you know, the law was broken? And they wouldn't accept that. They were basically saying, the Prime Minister has apologised, mistakes were made, we await, you know, the final result of what the Met say. So they can't even concede that. It's a very odd position for a government to be in, isn't it? When the police issue fixed penalty notices and therefore there is a... 
it's more than an acknowledgement, isn't it? The police are enforcing the fact it's, it's fact. That, that, that law has been broken and the government, the government won't accept that. And there's all sorts of other weird things too that we might not find out the names of any of the 20 people because they don't actually have to tell, you know, number 10, the people who give them a job, whether or not they've got that. And that's partly just what the law is, if you have a fixed penalty notice. But it's just all very, very strange. Now, you spoke uh, a matter of seconds ago about the idea that this would really, really reach a critical point if Boris Johnson himself is fine. But as far as the Labour Party is concerned, we're at a critical point already as regards Boris Johnson allegedly lying to Parliament. This is what Keir Starmer said at PMQ. The ministerial code says that ministers who knowingly mislead the House should resign. Yeah. Why is he still here? Yeah. Hang, hang, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. We do, we do at least expect some consistency from uh, this, this human weather vane. It, it, was, it was only a week... OK, so to the dying noise of braying MPs, Gabby, logically, what the Labour Party is saying seems to hold a huge amount of water in the sense that the police have clearly said in issuing these fixed penalty notices that the rules and the, and the law, therefore, were broken. And Boris Johnson, on innumerable occasions, including in front of the House of Commons, has said the opposite of that. So the Labour Party has a case, doesn't it? But I just wonder whether politically that's going to fly. It looks to most people like an open and shut case. You know, he repeatedly said to the Commons um, that the rules have been followed in number 10 and obviously the rules haven't been followed in number 10, so that looks like a lie, right? Um, Number 10's defence to this is what he said, certainly... The wording he began using was much more careful, which is, I have been assured or have repeatedly been assured that the rules were followed. Um, and at lobby yesterday, the spokesman said, you know, he's, he's set out his understanding of events at all times. So what <laughs> is this why Dominic Raab said he has told the truth to the best of his ability? Yes, like like you're a sort of five-year-old who can't quite sort of get it together. <laughs> but the, the argument they're making is essentially that he was told that no rules had been broken. So so that's what he told Parliament. And, you know, the inference is that somehow someone's lied to him or, you know, he's been misinformed and he's innocently kind of carried that through into the Commons, all of which falls apart, obviously, if he's personally fined, because if he's personally fined for going to a party, he can hardly claim that someone lied to him about where he was. So, um, you know, that it all falls apart that. at... Go on, that Peter, say that again. He possibly can claim that. He'll, <laughs> he'll claim anything, won't he? But then the way you're talking, therefore, would be that it's your sort of reasoned expectation that Boris Johnson, therefore, will get fined himself. Is that the way you feel instinctively? Well, until the police actually do it, you don't know. But, you know, we know he was at a number of occasions that could be qualified as parties, shall we say, um, at times when the number of people present or the nature of the event breached the rules. So, you know, it's... An enormous thing to heap on the Met to to this extent that essentially they're responsible for saying whether or not the Prime Minister has lied and whether or not they issue that fine determines to some extent, you know, Prime Minister's fate. That is an enormous pressure to heap on on the Met. And I wonder if, you know, Number 10 is quite conscious that they're doing that. The position of the Conservative Party as a whole, certainly its more vocal elements, seems to be that even if he did get fined, he should remain in office. Do you think that's tenable? In other words, if he does get fined will he have to resign? It is possible, but it's not tenable, if you know what I mean. In the same way that Boris Johnson's government has done all sorts of things, which previously political journalists and any journalist or anyone watching would have said, no, they can't do that. I mean, the Dominic Cummings stuff back in the day, the received wisdom was he's going to have to go. And, you know, it's a whole stuff about if a story goes on beyond a certain number of days, then people have to go. But they didn't. They just brazened it out. And the rules are pretty clear that if he's fined, as 
Gabby's saying that it means he must have known that he was at a party and thus he lied to Parliament. And the ministerial code says if you knowingly mislead Parliament, then you need to leave your job. But then Pretty Patel was found to have broken the ministerial code and she didn't go. So I think it's possible they're brazen it out. But then I think if they go into the next general election with Boris Johnson as effectively a proven liar, then I think that's quite toxic for them. So I don't think they've really worked that out properly. And the big point that sits inside all this is that this still matters to the public. It does. Clearly. I mean, lots of polling backs this up. But also it sort of negates this idea that a lot of Tory MPs and ministers for that matter are voicing, which is that the, the war in Ukraine somehow renders Partygate irrelevant. I mean, Gabby, that's just not true, right? No, I think, I mean, there was a, a period at the beginning of the war when um, I think we were all really shocked by what was happening, you know, and you're seeing this awful footage from, you know, cities that are being shelled into oblivion. And it, it it did feel a bit weird to be talking about parties at that point. You know, it just didn't feel kind of equal to the gravity of the moment. But that doesn't mean that people's views about Partygate, what they actually thought about whether it was right or wrong, have changed just because, you know, your attention's consumed by something else. And if you look forward to the next couple of months, what's going to be consuming people's attention? What's going to feel sort of serious, even if Partygate doesn't? It's a cost of living crisis here, which is equally bad, if not worse, for government. So, but Partygate sort of remains relevant and salient precisely because of the cost of living It remains, crisis. and that's what, that's what Keir Starmer was trying not entirely successfully to do, I think, at, number, at PMQs, was <laughs> yes. to tie the two together, was to say, look, this is the guy who lied to you about parties, and now he's lied to you about whether or not he's putting taxes up or cutting them. So, you know, he's trying to sort of take the feeling that people have about Partygate and spread it more widely across across the government agenda, which is what Labour needs to do to get anywhere near, near power. But I think the, the problem is... Partygate shows two things. It shows that the Prime Minister is, shall we say, economical with the truth. I think we probably already guessed that. But it also shows that he's not kind of, he's not in it with you. He doesn't do what a leader ought to do, which is if you're asking your your sort of population to go through something tough and difficult, you should be right there in the trenches with them, going through suffering the same conditions yourself. And it's very clear that he didn't do that during COVID. Everyone else had a miserable time in lockdown. Boris Johnson had quite a cheery one by the sounds of things. And if they can tie that to the cost of living crisis to this extent that, you know, your heating bill's going to go up and you won't be able to afford to meet your bills, but actually the Tories will be fine. You know, they'll get through this like they always have. Then I think Labour might be onto something. Yeah, that's that, that's, the, that's a sort of wider use of one rule for them and, and another yeah. for the rest of us. It, 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 it has sort of resonance in the midst of the cost of living crisis. So the other thing I wanted to talk about is the sense, which is highlighted by Partygate, really, of the government, and Boris Johnson in particular, having nothing else to fall back on. That when governments are hit by events, they always say, look, we're getting on with the job, or we have we have a much bigger agenda to attend to. And I don't really know what that is as an observer of this government. I mean, it was very telling to me, for example, that in Rishi Sunak's spring statement, levelling up wasn't mentioned once. Now, that's meant to be the defining mission of the government. And if that's not being talked about... <laughs> Then what have they got? Their, their, their whole mission is to muddle through to the next general election and try and win it and see where they are. I mean, you know, if you talk to any Tory MP and say, what is the defining mission? They'll say levelling up. Then you say, what does that mean? Well, they'll maybe quote something local. But there is a sense of a government in kind of real drift because they've not managed their legislative affairs particularly well. We're going to get to a crunch in the next couple of weeks because this parliamentary session is about to end and there's a few bills which they have to really really get through they have literally days to get through and this is quite big stuff like their elections bill the borders bill it's going to be quite tough and 
at the same time, a few months ago, there were these whole period of weeks where the Commons was being sent home on Thursday at like 3pm because there wasn't any legislative work for them to do. And there's a real sense that there's no one really in there thinking, what are we doing? And there's this whole stuff about, you know, if you again talk to Tory MPs, they'll say, oh, the team around Johnson you know, needs to be changed. But the problem isn't the team. The problem is the person at the centre. And if you have someone leading the ship who has no defining mission beyond staying in power, then that's reflected in the government. Gabby, is it as bad as that? It's only a matter of weeks since the, as, as derisory as it, is, as it seemed to be, since the Leather Nut White Paper was published, right? And it's just vanished. I actually think, I mean, if... I actually think they do have a defining mission. It's just that they're not actually doing anything about it. Go I mean, on, if what you, is it? Either, well, either just delivering Brexit and make it work. Frankly, that would be an entire parliament's work, given how complicated it is and given how impossible it is to make it work and, you know, sort of re-establishing Britain's role in the world. Actually, if you're actually going to do levelling up, that's an entire parliament's work. You know, these are not, these are not like flimsy missions. It's just that there's literally nothing attached to them. They say they're going to do it and somehow saying they're going to do it is meant to stand for actually doing something. But that's a, that's they, a they defining kind of mission it. without the, that's the de- a yeah, defining mission exactly. without the defining part, isn't you it? Were, you approach it and then run away again because it's all quite hard and difficult really and expensive and that <laughs> sort of slightly is the government's leitmotif of, you know, and, and then you fall back on <laughs> just either muddling through the day-to-day stuff that has to be done. I mean, net zero we get to the, is, again, another thing that could, you know, could become the sort of shaping purpose of an entire parliament. And that's, you know, reduced to sort of occasional hit-and-run attacks on energy policy rather than a sort of a thought-through overarching mission. It's just all very hopscotch. It's lots of hopping between things and not actually doing any of them properly. It's a very Boris Johnson thing to do, isn't it? The fact that you sort of apply for the job and you get there and you go, God, I didn't realise it was going to be this much work. I mean, that's sort of where he is. It's this kind of newspaper columnist uh, approach to government. And Oh, come on. Don't take the <laughs> name of newspaper columnist in vain. <laughs> I should have thought that, I, I should have thought, thought that one through before on. I said I was it. secretly thinking that, but I didn't want to say it. <laughs> Some of us work hard on our newspaper columns, I'll have you know. But one of the things is, I mean, to an extent, what Gabby says is completely true. There, there is an extent to which all governments do that. They kind of tentatively poke at these incredibly difficult issues and think, actually, no, we're not going to do it just yet. But they tend to have much more of an idea of what they want to do. But we're in this kind of weird position now where Brexit dominated things for, in political terms, quite a long time. And it just focused every bit of bandwidth on just getting it done. And there was this sense when the Brexit deal, you know, was supposedly done, even though we're only not even part of the way there, that there was a sense of, you know, we've done what we were elected to do, now what we meant to do. And and it does come back to, as I was saying, arguably the problem is that, you know, Johnson is the issue. They keep on changing the team around him. And that you even get some MPs who say he should be more of like a kind of chairman. We need someone else to come in as the chief executive and actually get things done, which is not a kind of vote of confidence in the man you've put in power. But however you kind of rearrange the deck chairs, you're still on the same ship, basically. Policy can either be driven from number 10, or if it's not being driven from number 10, in the past it's been driven by number 11. You know, if you have a chancellor with a really strong sense of what they want to do or what they want the country to look like in five years' time, then that becomes the driving force of government. And in the Blair-Brown government, you both of them essentially were the driving force or of government. Or even the ministers, Sometimes. but the fact that it's so such a centralised thing that the ministers yeah. are not allowed to come up with their own uh, yeah. ideas, it gets totally quashed. So you have, you know, you have plenty of people with ideas, but they just can't, you know, do them. Okay, let's pause that. In a moment, we'll talk about Keir Starmer, but don't let that put you off. Um, I want to try to understand why perhaps it doesn't feel like Labour, by the same token, don't have that much of a mission or a vision and perhaps aren't scoring um, when presented with an open political goal. (laughs) 
Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Welcome back. It's nice that you're still with us. We're now going to talk about another aspect of the current political battle between the Tories and the Labour Party. Perhaps as a sort of proxy for reviving the Brexit divide between Leavers and Remainers, Boris Johnson seems very keen on what some people would call the culture wars, the British end of them. And the sort of awkwardness of all that was epitomised by something that happened in Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday. That day, the newly elected Tory MP for Bridge End, Jamie Wallace, wrote a tweet saying that they'd been the victim of rape and that they're trans. And Boris Johnson sounded a, a sort of caring and sympathetic note about this. But this is the same Boris Johnson who, at the at the Tory dinner we spoke about a moment ago, opened with a joke about Keir Starmer's position on trans rights and only a matter of a week or so ago, I think, began PMQs, or certainly it was quite near the start of it, by referring to uh, argument and debate about trans rights. And then in the same sentence said, you had to be caring and accepting in your approach to all this. And as ever, it seemed to me that he really was trying to have his cake and eat it at the same time. So you've simultaneously got a Prime Minister who wants to politically use issues around sex and gender in a very, very crass way, but also affecting to sound caring and accepting and sensitive about it. And I also think that that aspect of all this, Boris Johnson really going for these issues, highlights Labour's position too, in the sense that very often they seem scared of clarity on the the trans issue in particular. The Labour position... It seems to be that trans women are women. But any time that senior Labour people are asked about this, they sort of fall into a a panic, it seems, more often than not. Anyway, Gabby, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I do. I mean, I should first say, actually, that I think what Jamie Wallace did was incredibly brave and difficult to do. And, you know, issues that are really difficult to talk about and something I think that Jamie hadn't wanted to talk about. Uh, while remaining an MP. But uh, and it'll be interesting to see whether that changes the way the Commons discusses these issues. And I think it's a different atmosphere in a chamber when you're talking about something that you know directly applies to somebody who's sitting there with you. And it'll be interesting to see whether that sort of changes the nature of the debate at all. But yeah, I mean, on the Labour position, I think <laughs> they have got a position. They're in favour of self-ID, but they're also in favour of retaining the exemptions in the Equality Act. And what that means for anyone who hasn't sort of followed this incredibly intensively, those exemptions allow in some situations where it's proportionate and necessary to a legitimate aim that trans people can be excluded from services that would normally be applicable to them. So, for example, that you can exclude trans women from a, a say, a counselling service for sex abuse victims if if you feel that that's the only way you can deliver the service to women and they'll be confident coming. So Labour has got a position. It's just that it would rather not talk about it. It would rather talk about anything else. And you get that sense whenever, you know, any senior person is asked about it on the radio. And when it does have to talk about it, it tends to kind of tie itself up in knots because there's a very strong awareness that this issue is not just divisive for voters. It's very divisive for Labour Party members, Labour Party activists, Labour MPs. 
MPs, you know, have strong views on both sides of the divide. And there's almost nothing Keir Starmer can say that's going to please everyone and something and there's going to be something that upsets pretty much everyone. So they just rather not talk about it. And it's of course precisely for that reason that all enterprising journalists anywhere will continue to ask them about it until they lose that kind of rabbit in the headlights look whenever the question comes up. And more to the point that senior Tories will continue to go after them on, on this stuff, right? Yes, although their position isn't much better. You know, Boris Johnson is caught between this position that they, you know, Carrie Johnson gave a really interesting speech at Conservative Party conference, basically to an LGBT reception saying the Tories are basically the party of trans equality now and we're, you know, the friends of trans equality. And Boris Johnson gave a very carefully worded interview afterwards in which he sounded extremely sort of signed up to the whole thing. But then there's that. And there's at the same time, there's this kind of sniggering schoolboyish thing that comes over Boris Johnson whenever he, you know, there's a, there is a tendency to make exactly that kind of off-colour joke that he made yesterday. You know, they're not got a comfortable position either. Peter, some Labour politicians, some senior Labour politicians are better at sounding coherent and convincing on this, aren't they? They are. Keir Starmer, when asked about it, you know, does kind of freeze a little tiny bit and reverts to a kind of loyally approach of talking about the Equalities Act and what is allowed and what's not, you know, which I can kind of understand. It's quite a tricky subject. Angela Rayner on Wednesday morning, speaking in the broadcast round, actually did quite well. She was making the point that, you know, these kind of Tory jibes about, you know, if you've got a penis, can you be a woman? She was making the point that just asking people what their kind of gentle situation is, is just a bit personal and a bit rude. Maybe you shouldn't do that, which I thought was a good point. I would like to think that Jamie Wallace's kind of very brave statement in saying what he said would perhaps focus a few minds on conservative benches. But the problem is that Boris Johnson has, you know, as we're saying, this kind of tendency to to say stupid things. Let's talk about the Labour Party, though, because the Labour Party, or or certainly some leading figures of the Labour Party's lack of clarity and confidence about this issue, it can be argued as part of a, a more general picture of sort of fuzziness and a lack of definition. The government clearly is in trouble. That trouble seems to me to be deepening. It's sort of visibly flailing around. Labour is ahead in the opinion polls, not by much, though. It's got some pretty strong policies, windfall tax on the energy companies, spending £28 billion a year on what amounts to a sort of quasi-Green New Deal. But whenever I hear Keir Starmer asked about big questions about what kind of country this is, where he wants to take it and so on, he doesn't seem to say very much at all. I mean, his last big pitch was all about what he called a contract with the British people. The Labour Party now has three chosen abstract nouns. Can you remember those? Respect, security, security, and equality. Prosperity, no. prosperity, and respect. Yeah, which, which again is quite sort of bland and fuzzy and, and non-specific. Starmer, it seems to me, is still stuck in the "I'm not Jeremy Corbyn" phase of his leadership. I understand why he had to do that, but surely now, in the context of everything we've talked about so far, now's the time to go sort of big and to strike out and to tell a story about the country. And I don't hear one. Do you? Not as yet. If you talk to Labour people, they will make the point that it's been a really, really weird opposition time because you had COVID and they were aware they didn't want to be kind of endlessly kind of nitpicking, rocking the boat during this kind of worst national emergency for 60, 70 years. And the Ukraine war is to an extent a bit like that. But there's also a sense to which Labour and Labour members knew what they were picking. I mean, Keir Starmer didn't come into power saying, I'm this amazing orator will set out this vision. He was essentially a technocrat. He was someone who was different to Jeremy Corbyn, but different to Boris Johnson too. Someone who would be sober and responsible. I mean, his backstory is as blameless as you could possibly get. I keep on thinking about that 
time the Daily Mail tried to dig up dirt on him. And the worst they could find was he created a donkey sanctuary for his uh, mum. And that was kind of the worst dirt that they could find. And there's an extent to which Labour will argue that they're ahead in the polls, you know, albeit not by much. And that if they keep on plugging away with basically being competent and not being kind of dishonest, not being Boris Johnson, that might be enough. But it's a big gamble. I mean, it's dangerous for Keir Starmer, isn't it? It, particularly if Partygate's revived. If Partygate is revived, that might look good for the Labour Party, but that then further justifies him just really selling himself on the basis of sort of dull competence and the fact that he's not flamboyant and he's not Boris Johnson. And the need for a bigger story, a bigger narrative, then gets postponed yet again. And before you know it, it's the election. That's the issue for the Labour Party, among many, isn't it? Well, it's yeah, it's not knowing how long you've got. I mean, the Labour Party, I've been surprised actually by how many people in the Labour Party will talk about being ready for a potential election from as early as this year. And, you know, and you look at the National Policy Forums coming up, they are geared around, you know, having something to say in a manifesto. And I mean, there seems to be still a great focus on establishing who Keir is as a person. And we've got to get people to understand who Keir is as a person. Well, it may be in the kindest possible way that who Keir is as a person is nice, but quite dull. And that you're <laughs> never going to make, make that, you know, into a firecracker. And maybe nice, but quite dull is fine. Maybe, good Lord, after the last yeah, few years, not, maybe that would be, not, that'll be not, great. You but you won't get permission to do anything, but will you? you don't get permission. You need to, it goes to, has to go beyond that personality. It has to go to, you could understand what your life would be like under a Labour government and how it would be different. You, you know, I think we were at the sort of stage where people are disillusioned with this government and also, more importantly, where this government looks tired. I would say, I don't, don't underestimate, though, the value of having negated some of the old reasons not to vote Labour. And if you look at what's happening in the red wall seats, you know, the picture there, if you look at the polling and the focus groups, is exactly pretty much where Labour would want it to be. And he has got across the message that he's not Jeremy Corbyn, was important. Ukraine has helped him get across the message that Labour is in a very different place on defence and security now than it was a few years ago. Those two things are important. So I was reading last week in connection with something I was writing. I was reading some of the early speeches that Tony Blair made immediately after he became the leader of the Labour Party. Now, I'm not the world's greatest Tony Blair fan, but it's pretty inspiring stuff which speaks to the condition of the country. He says, look, we're a great country. We have all these talents and all this promise. And under the kind of people who were in government clapped out after all this time, we could do so much better. And we all know that schools are in a terribly unsatisfactory state and the health service is in a mess. And some of those messages, you know, they sound equally relevant now, you know. But there was a story about the country. That's what's missing. It's and it's story, not yeah, there with Keir Starmer, is it? I, I think, I think Labour people would say that too. But I think, you know, if they were to hear all this, they would say, you know, give us a chance, give us a bit more time. <laughs> But then, how much time? Do well, want? not much longer. Yeah, and, th- and then from the perspective of the voter, Gabby, it just seems to me that that highlights something quite strange: that we're in the midst of all this turbulence nationally and globally. We've just come through Brexit. You know, arguably we're still in the midst of it. The pandemic's happened. Now there's an awful war in Europe and so on. So people feel very sort of buffeted around and weary. And the one thing that they're not getting, either from the government or the opposition, is any coherent and hopeful sense of the future. It's just a very strange position for the electorate to be in. It is, and it's a particularly bad position for any progressive party to, to be in because, you know, the whole point of the left is to be kind of hopeful and optimistic and think things can only get better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and there's not, if you're not conveying... and Boris Johnson is actually quite good at doing feel good, you know, happy, uplifting. It may not work for you, but it very clearly worked for the public in 2019. And you need that kind of note of 
of hope or the sense that there's something better around the corner. I think there's an interesting difference between where New Labour was in the mid-1990s, which was actually quite an economically benign yes, place was, to be. Yeah. You know, the Tories had underspent, but so public services were in a state, but, you know, the economy was firing along quite nicely, thank you. And, you know, that is not the position we're in now. Everything looks harder, bigger, problems more entrenched. If you think of what the next government, whoever is in charge of it, inherits, you know, the legacy of the pandemic and Brexit and, you know, sort of years of not quite managing to even recover from the 2010 crash. You know, it, it is quite a bleak landscape to inherit and quite difficult to see what it is that you promise in those circumstances. But that's what they get paid the big bucks for or, or not the big bucks, actually. But yeah, that is the job. And that's why I'm not doing it. That in, 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 even in bleak, or particularly in bleak circumstances, give us a bit of hope. And the problem is, I suppose, that Boris Johnson is all optimism and no substance. And as things stand, the Labour Party is lacking in both optimism and substance. And on that cheery note, we're going to bring things to a close. We will return <laughs> to all these subjects next week. What was it you said about giving people hope? Hope's always <laughs> nice, isn't it? We'll return next week in pursuit of hope, as we always are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Peter and Gabby. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, if you enjoy listening to The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland discussing in a similarly optimistic or, you know, hoping for a bit of optimism kind of way every Friday, you'll want to subscribe to his new podcast. As Johnny's show won't be available on this podcast anymore, it's called Politics Weekly America and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So to get all of the weekly latest news from Washington and beyond, search for Politics Weekly America and hit subscribe. That's Politics Weekly America, if you haven't heard already, out every Friday. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena. Music was by Axel Coutier Sam was by Ivor Manley. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back next Thursday.